Hey guys, welcome to Winging It, the West Wing podcast. This is Andrea, and today we have a special interview with writer and producer Eli Addy. Eli has worked on some amazing television shows, including the show House and in the actual White House. We are so happy that Eli could join us, and just wanted to give you guys a heads up that if you have not seen the full series yet, do not listen to this episode as it is full of spoilers. In this episode, you'll hear me ask about the lost Halloween episode of the West Wing, as well as the rumor that Arnold Vinnick was slated to win the campaign. We get his thoughts on working with John Spencer, as well as uh, his opinion on whether or not Aaron Sorkin would actually write a reboot. And since he worked in the writer's room, I thought he'd be a great person to ask. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Let us know your thoughts at thewestwingpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, you can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod. Here we go. So we're really excited that you're with us. Eli Addy, writer and producer from The West Wing. And I know that it's Aaron Sorkin's show and it's his baby, but I think you worked on more episodes than he did. True, well, true or false? Uh, it depends how you look at it. I mean, you know, I was on the West Wing for five seasons. Uh, Aaron was on the West Wing for four. But um, So if we're looking at it from a mathematical standpoint. <laughs> well, if you're looking at it from a sort of, a, you know, occupying space in an office standpoint, I think that's the only standpoint by which I, I beat him. Uh, you know, it's his vision. It's his voice. The four years he was there, he was all over every comma and every frame uh, in a way that, you know, I wasn't when I was, even in the post-Aaron era, I was part of a team and, uh, you know, got to write a lot of episodes and got to contribute a lot of things to some episodes I didn't write. But um, but it's funny, I probably contributed more to episodes I didn't write under Aaron than I did under John Wells, because under Aaron, it wasn't really a multi-writer TV show in the traditional sense. I did write some scripts, and there were some a few other writers who wrote some scripts, but really, it was Mozart, you know, leading his orchestra in a way, and and uh, you know, we were all his kind of brain trust advisors, you know, confidants, uh, readers of first drafts. Not that the second drafts were very different from the first drafts. He had this kind of uh, savant-like ability to turn out great first drafts. So anyway, it's a long, rambling way of saying. Uh, I don't think I'd beat Aaron Sorkin by any definition at pretty much anything that anybody <laughs> measure at all. Uh, I admire him. He's a friend of mine. Uh, uh, he gave me a career. I'm still incredibly grateful for that. I just think it's incredible to have you on here because you've made your mark not only with this huge piece of American pop culture, but also in the political landscape. So, I mean, in two huge spheres of influence, you've left your... An indelible mark, so it's uh, it's pretty. I don't cool. know how indelible, uh, you know, a guy who won the presidency and didn't get certified as president, uh, you know, and and uh, you know, a TV show where we tried to sort of fictionalize those sorts of things. I, I've been very lucky. I've had great opportunities. I've I've had wonderful people sort of take me under their various wings. No pun intended. Uh, so I've been just very fortunate and I just, I try to, as you were saying before we started recording, you know, I've just tried to be really open to opportunities in my life. I've never really had career goals. Um, I don't know if I recommend that to other people. Uh, but in my sense, I think in my, you know, if you work hard and if you, if you don't have a fixed 
view of what you want your life or career to be, sometimes things appear before you that you wouldn't even notice mm -hmm. if you were, you know, trying to, you know, move ahead in your dental career or whatever. Um, and, and I've just seized a bunch of them and I've been very lucky. So in terms of your transition from being, you know, Al Gore's chief speechwriter to screenwriting, being that The West Wing was your first foray into screenwriting, like in what ways is speechwriting more difficult than screenwriting or vice versa? Like what, how does the two compare? Or at least when I you first started? Say, I would say that, that screenwriting is about a hundred times more difficult than speechwriting. And, and it's a funny thing because the, the way this transition really started for me was that an old college acquaintance of mine made a joke to me in an email about, you know, well, you're a speechwriter. If this doesn't work out, meaning the Florida recount, if it doesn't work out and Gore doesn't become the president, you should sell out and become a screenwriter. And I thought to myself, well, speechwriter, screenwriter, you know, how different could they be? I had no real aspiration before that to come to Hollywood or to be a screenwriter. I didn't really know what it entailed. I didn't have a script in a drawer that I'd been playing around with. Um, and they're completely different. And, and the way I sort of explain the difference, well, there's a couple ways to explain it. One is that, you know, speech writing is writing. You're, you're making an argument and pretty much all you have are the words. Whereas in screenwriting, I would say the last 12% of writing a script is the writing. The rest of it is architecture, mm. uh, plot, exposition emotion, visuals, you know, character development, and things that you can spend, you know, let's say two months working on a script or three months, and a relatively small percentage of that amount of time is going to be sitting in front of a keyboard really writing. A lot of it is mapping it out, thinking, pacing, playing music, going for a drive, you know, thinking about your own life. Those are things you don't do when you're, when you're writing a, a speech. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is that I think that um, speech writing is so impersonal, you know, in the sense that you're inhabiting another person's brain. And, you know, I, when I worked for Al Gore, um, of course, chief of staff, when I started, a guy named Ron Klain, who's a, who's a kind of a political eminence now and still a friend of mine, he used to always say, because we would have our disagreements with Gore, um, but at the end of the day, Gore was the boss, and he would always kind of say, to me or about himself, he'd say, well, you know, it's, it's our job, but it's his life. Mm. You had to let go at a certain point. Mm. Um, and you're telling someone else's story. And rarely are you even really telling their story. Mostly you're describing their Medicare plan. You know, okay. but, but in screenwriting, you're trying to make people feel something. And you do in speeches, too. But it's more about me, which is to say, even if I'm writing a script for Toby Ziegler on The West Wing, all I have to draw on for emotional experience is me. Mm. You know, all it really felt is the things that I've felt. And so it, it's just much more personal. And that makes it more difficult because, you know, you're afraid of being judged. Mm. You're, you're afraid that somebody's going to read a script or look at an episode of television and think, well, that just seems phony. And mm. it might be like the most important moment of your life that they decide they mm. don't believe. Um, so you're exposing yourself in a way. It's very psychologically difficult, but also just... There's so many more components to it. So anyway, another long rambling way of saying if the two words hadn't sounded similar, speech writing and screenwriting, I never would have tried to make the leap because um, I certainly didn't know how hard it was going to be when I made the leap. Um, and I heard that there were 
I mean, I'm sure you have so many stories of your time at the White House and on the campaign trail that you pitched to Aaron or the other writers, and they said that some of them, though they were true, they didn't sound real, and, like, the audience wouldn't have bought it because they just didn't, they were so absurd or things like that. Are there any stories that you can recall that just, like, didn't make the cut because they didn't seem plausible to the audience or you didn't think it would be? I worked for, I worked for Dick Gephardt, who was the leader of the House Democrats and a wonderful man who, you know, ran for president twice and was thinking of running a number of times that he didn't run. I worked for Bill Clinton. I worked for Al Gore. And I think I can say without, without naming a particular politician, that the psychological profile of somebody who wants to be president of the United States, somebody who wants to you know, live in motels in Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire for two years and not see their family. You know, somebody incredibly powerful and and charismatic and, you know, type A personality who essentially wants to go beg people on the street for their support for years. Mm -hmm. It's not a normal person. And um, I think as much as we and Aaron, you know, sort of mind like Jed Bartlett's psyche, especially in the third season of the show, actually, in a lot of ways, um, politicians are crazy. and, and they're We've crazy definitely seen evidence that, of that. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they're, they're crazy in ways that aren't always relatable or sympathetic. And it's true of every, every politician I've ever you know, known or had a conversation you know, about, a candid conversation with somebody who knows them well. And I think if you really were to go there, it's Veep, it's not the West Wing. Mm. You know what I mean? It's narcissism, it's vanity, it's petty insecurities, it's it's the chaos they leave in their wake, and it's very, very few politicians who don't have a lot of sort of dysfunction. Um, and I think just probably within my first three days in the West Wing writer's room, I was throwing out all kinds of stories, and people were saying, whoa, whoa, you know, like nobody would watch this show if we did that stuff. And... Um, you know, maybe some of those stories I shouldn't tell, you know, at this moment, but, but, um, but you can, if you want to, <laughs> well, you know, let's just say that, uh, the other thing is that the, the Gore campaign, and I love Al Gore and I'm still in touch with Al Gore. I saw him not that long ago. Uh, you know, that was a rough campaign and we changed our, our team of strategists every few months and, you know, we changed our slogan every few months. It's funny because I think in the first season of The West Wing, there's a banner at one point that you see in the background of a Bartlett speech that says practical idealism. Mm-hmm. And you blink, miss it. But that was one of many embarrassingly discarded slogans uh, that the Gore campaign had at various points. I think Gore and I came up with that one and were then sort of, you know, laughed out of the room, even though we used it in a couple speeches. And um, I remember saying to Aaron when I started The West Wing, like, I can't believe I saw that because I was catching up on the episodes. I hadn't seen them all when I started. And I, I noticed that and said, where did you, why did you put that in there? And he said, oh, I heard it and thought it was so cool. And he's the only person in the country who thought that. <laughs> I mean, that's high praise. So <laughs> if you had to have one person who was a fan, that was a good fan to have. Well, no. and, 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 and what I loved about Aaron, I mean, I guess the point I was making was just that we had a lot of crazy, absurd, you know, things happen in the Gore campaign, and, and also just things that were amusing, but maybe not weighty, you know, uh, that maybe we could have used in the show in certain ways. I mean, I remember on the 2000 campaign, Jay Leno wanted to, um, he wanted Al Gore to throw a pie in his face, I think, on Tonight Show, 
and um, I was sort of his conduit. So I actually got a phone call from Leno directly saying, you know, this is what we want to do tonight. And it was kind of this crisis, mini crisis, because I knew Gore wouldn't want to do it. I didn't really want to talk to Gore about it because I didn't want to then have to either represent his view or lie about it to, to Leno and his people. So I, I just, I, I remember we were in three different states that day. So every time we would touch down, I'd end up back on the phone with Jay Leno, basically trying to explain why it just wasn't presidential to throw a pie in his face. And, you know, you're dealing with that while we had some big economic speech we were writing. And I think like we saw Bob Rubin that day and he was trying to advise us to do something. I mean, it's just, your life is just a, silly and weird and um there are lots of unflattering moments for everybody and i guess the west wing did that but it was a little bit more you take your real life stories and you change the ending mm. you know and you sort of make them it's 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 the, the real life version usually is you don't do the courageous uh noble thing um you get bullied out of it mm. uh and on the west wing you know things are more hopeful uh, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's the politics we wish we had. Um, it was good therapy for me, actually. I think it's about to be good therapy for many of us as we look to the next four years. Yeah. To, we're currently recording this on the last day of Obama's presidency and I'm wearing all black in mourning. <laughs> oh my God. It's true. Tomorrow morning is, um, Donald Trump's inaugural address, which, um, should just be an indie rock band's name and not a thing that's happening. Uh, so there you go. Oh, three doors down is gonna hold it down. Okay, I've I've a litany of questions. Some of them specific. Sure. Uh, at the ATX Festival in Austin, uh, when Aaron was speaking, he talked about like a Halloween episode that never. I don't know if it was even shot or not, but I think it was around the time that September 11th yes. happened, it's, and so it, it was didn't. Not... Okay. Do you remember it's anything finished. about that? Because people have been kind of clamoring to know what you know, it would have been. Uh, not, not that I want to invite uh, people to, you know, uh, West Wing fans to stalk my home, but I'm pretty sure that in my garage, in a binder somewhere, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm 100% sure I have what was written of it, but it wasn't much. I think it was probably 12 pages or something, because very often when, when we were sort of in the Aaron years of the West Wing, we as a staff would feed stories, ideas. In, you know, stuff for scenes to him, and he would sit down at his computer, and you know, ninety-nine out of a hundred times, he would just write the script. Um, and he he had begun writing it, and I can't remember how much. It might have just been a teaser in a first act. Um, and in the middle of all that, September eleventh happened. So what I what I would have to dig around if I you know, and 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 there's a way to get an answer to this, I suppose. But I'm sure any storyline we had for that episode. That could have been repurposed was. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. If there was some kind of foreign policy crisis, we probably just pitched it to him again and did it later on. Um, but I'm sure it was a script and an episode that in his mind had a certain tone and a certain vibe, and we certainly didn't do another Halloween episode. So, um, yeah, everything got thrown out at that point. Uh, there wasn't a lot that was thrown out, and honestly, it couldn't have been more than 12, 15 pages of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, the lost episode of The West Wing. I know. It's that elusive one that got away. So, and just because I don't, it, I would imagine it varies from show to show and from writer to writer, but how, in terms of the architecture of the story of the show as a whole, but also just character development and plot, like, how do you, 
how do you map that out? Do you think of like, these are scenarios I would love to see Toby Ziegler in, or these are, this is where I want the, you know, Josh to be emotionally by the end of this season. And then you go backwards. Like, well, is there a, a method or approach to that you do, you have? There are, there are a lot of methods and there are a lot of approaches and it happens kind of every which way. And I think if you're, if you're talking about screenwriting in general, that's one thing. If you're talking about the West Wing, there really were two distinct eras of the show, as you know, the Aaron Sorkin era and the John Wells era. And in the Aaron era, you know, we as a group led by Kevin Falls, for at least for the second, third, and fourth seasons, would we had a, a writer's room with about 10 people that kind of adjoined Aaron's office. So Aaron would be coming in and out of the writer's room all day, and he'd usually start his morning hanging out with us and just talking, you know, socially, and then you know, maybe easing into, well, what are you working on? What are you thinking? But we spent a lot of time without him in the room trying to figure out, well, you know, episode five is written. What would be a cool episode six? What are the storylines we have to pick up on? You know, what are the what are the characters up to? The West Wing, in the Aaron years, it wasn't too terribly serialized, except for maybe um, – the end of seasons, the last handful of episodes of a particular season. So in general, we, it wasn't wasn't so much where did we leave the character emotionally. It was more what's an interesting emotional dilemma for a character. Hmm. Um, you know, do we want to see Josh Lyman with egg on his face? Does Toby meet someone and kind of fall for them? Um, and what was really interesting to me was I was just learning, obviously, screenwriting. And, and the thing that I picked up on right away was, okay, here's how a plot works. Uh, you know, scene one, you know, the Chinese government, you know, points their missiles at us. You know, scene two, we point our missiles at them. You know, scene three, you know, they fire at us. What what was interesting was that you could, you know, you could tell that same story with about 900 different character stories underlying it. And very often as a team, we would pitch Aaron these incredibly detailed uh, policy stories, political stories with cool twists and moves and great little you know monologues people could give. And my memory, at least, of those, the two years that I worked with Aaron on the show was that, you know, he generally liked our work and, you know, we were able to sell him on lots of ideas, but he would very often end up changing the character story. Uh, I had a story once about something, there was something that I'd read some articles about called Remote Prayer, mm. which was basically... You know, there was research, it's now been debunked, that if people are praying for you and you don't know it, that your odds of overcoming certain illnesses are greater. Um, so the idea was somebody came to Josh and with, with a Republican congressman with this data and wanted some federal money to go into this. To me, it was a story about Josh Lyman's fundamental beliefs being challenged and him taking a moment and thinking maybe I'm wrong to be such a skeptic about this. But um, Aaron, you know, kept, I think, every policy scene that, that I had proposed, turned it into a very different story, which was a, a story about um, Josh would do anything to get this bill passed, including put in something that was very noxious and reprehensible to him. So all the scenes were in the same places, but what it meant to the character was very different. Mm. Um, but, you know, we, as, as a writer's room, would start from any of those places. Just here's an interesting political scenario. Here's, here's a, a thing we'd like to see this character go through. But in my career since then, you know, uh, uh, and in general, I think, you know, all drama is conflict. 
and 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 the best the best conflicts are really wrenching dilemmas that really challenge characters beliefs and 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 that make them risk things that really matter to them so you're always thinking to yourself you know you don't want every every episode of a show to be extreme like it's some crazy soap opera but you're always thinking well, what's the worst thing that could happen to Josh what's the worst thing a senator could do or say what's the worst thing his girlfriend could do or say you know it's a, a, a good um, example being I think it was in the third season of the show when Brad Woodford's character and Mary Louise Parker's character started dating and then ended up essentially on opposite sides of a big policy fight. And, you know, they care about each other and suddenly they're at war. And, like, those are the kinds of things you're looking for. You're looking for things where plot meets character meets emotion. Um, and, um, you know, it's a mystical process in the sense that ideas come from everywhere. Mm. Um, and sometimes you start with a plot, sometimes you start with a character. Um, sometimes if you're working on a TV show with really great characters, like The West Wing, like House, another show I worked on, the characters tell you what they want to do. You mm -hmm. just think to yourself, you know, well, you know, here's what, you know, I can imagine Josh Lyman would be doing this, you know, or CJ would be doing this. Did you have a favorite character, um, from what I've, I've heard that you most closely identified with Josh Lyman, but did you have a, and feel free to comment on that, but did you have a favorite character either just as, a spectator or a favorite character to write and were those the same character you know um it's such a great this is a credit to to aaron but it was such a great vehicle there are so many great characters and they're different and 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 they you know even when they all were doing the greatest you know sort of sorkin you know banter they, they, they come at things from different points of view, and you, you hear the actors' voices in your head when you're working on a show that's so well-established. So I loved um, – and actually, here's another thing, which is that you know, a lot of people ask screenwriters you know, and all my friends who do this for a living, you know, is there, if you're working on a TV show, well, is there a character you sort of focus on? Is there a character you write for? And the reality is you can love – C.J. Craig, but if she's in a room by herself, you don't have a scene. Mm -hmm. So, so, so what's really great is putting the characters together. I probably did relate most to Josh Lyman, and also um, Brad Whitford uh, is a good friend of mine. It was from the beginning of my time on the show, and you know we talked a lot off off the set, and and I did also with Richard and with Allison and with all those actors. And when you learn about them personally, and when you learn what they're like and what they're interested in, one of the great things about working on a long running TV show is you can feed their own ideas back into the character or their own um, quirks. Um, and, and that's something Aaron did a lot in a, in a loving way, not it, not to, you know, to confront them with it, but you know, here's a fun thing that Alice and Janney likes to do in her trailer at night. And we'll just, let's write it into a scene. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I wrote a lot of episodes in certainly in the post Aaron era that centered on Josh, but I think I was really interested in the relationship between Josh and Toby. And I think all, all those episodes, you know, I wrote some bigger Toby episodes too, but all my Josh episodes probably ended up, you know, exploring the problems the two of them had in their relationship. Um, so it's, it's, it's the conflict that's interesting more than the character mm. for me. But everybody relates to Josh. Everybody who works in politics relates to Josh Lyman. But I think because of that crew of characters, he's the little bit, he's the least pure. He's the one who always, to me, struggled the most with the politics of the situation versus what's right. Mm. And that's me.
another, I mean, we try to get some, some anecdotes, some stories from all the people that we've talked to so far. John Spencer, is there any, are there any particular memories of, uh, of John? And then I also want to ask about some of the, the Leo storylines in the later seasons, but anything about John Spencer yeah. specifically? I loved John. Uh, you know, I, he was, he was, um, he was an unbelievable actor. Um, I think that of, of all the West Wing actors, um, and they're all phenomenal actors, but, you know, a lot of actors, great actors, they take a handful of takes to warm up and, um, you know, it'll be take five, take six, take seven. The scene really starts to happen and it's fantastic. Um, but John and Allison Janney's this way too. John, the first take of anything he ever did, you could have put in the show. He just he 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 knew what he was doing. He knew who the character was, and he just really really delivered. He was a he was a very seasoned, trained theater actor, like a lot of the West Wing actors. And um, you know, I knew him off the show too. I had meals with him, and and um, he was a really uh, he was a really lovely, compassionate. Guy, I, I think sometimes you find that artists are incredibly affectionate people because you know they, they live these nomadic lives. You're working with 20 people on a play, and then you sort of don't see them uh, again, mm -hmm. maybe for a few years, and and everyone's a little isolated in their own little path. And um, so when I came to LA, I, I found a lot more warmth among the West Wing community, let's say, than on the staff of the vice president of the United States, you know, where it's just not really like that. So John was a guy who hugged people a lot. He, uh, um, if you read a script of yours and liked it, he'd just call you, you know, just to say good job. You know, he was a, he was just a sweetheart. And, um, and somebody said this and it might've been Aaron or Tommy Shlami, but it was true in a way that the, the, um, the president and the chief of staff on the show, and those two actors, in some ways, were like the mother and father figures of the show. I don't mm. know who was the mother and who was the <laughs> father. But, like, they were the couple on the show, you mm. know, with the closest relationship, really. Not, mm. um, you know, not Martin and Stalker Channing. And, um, you know, I can't think of, like, a funny anecdote or anything sort of wacky about him other than he was very serious about the work. He was a great person to work with. I was, like everybody on the show heartbroken you know when he passed away um, um, some of us had known he had he had been ill actually but it was not, it, he, it was something he had beaten uh, and that was not what killed him actually and it came as total shock and I think we all felt uh, in that final season that the because there was still had been talk of doing an additional season after that which would have been very different would have followed a new president but I think after John passed away, a lot of people felt the heart of the show was kind of gone, mm. uh, and, and it wasn't worth doing without him. Um, and I felt that way. I, I, I flew back with some of the cast, and you know, went to his wake and his funeral in New Jersey. Some of the other writers went. Um, it was uh, it was devastating. Mm. I read somewhere that originally uh, Matt Santos and Leo were supposed to lose. Is that correct? And Vinick was supposed to win originally, and then it's actually it's actually not correct. Okay, um, great. <laughs> and that was that was reported. Uh, I remember in the New York Times, I think first 
here's what happened, which is um, that when Jimmy Smith was approached for, to play to play Matt Santos, you know, not by me, but by John Wells, uh, we as a group, I mean, it was John Wells who really said, you know, why don't we run the next campaign? You know, what can we do? You know, Aaron left the show. There was no equaling or imitating Aaron at doing his show. I think that creatively the fifth season had peaks and valleys. I mean, I think there were some great things about it, but there were some things that didn't really work. And I think that, um, you know, the goal that season, I think for John and for all of us, was just to keep it afloat, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and uh, I think we did it, you know, with varying degrees of success at times. And, and uh, I don't think John Wells would have thought it was smart right after Aaron had left the show to suddenly change characters and change everything about it. Mm-hmm. So we didn't. But when we'd gotten through that season, the writers actually went on a little retreat to Hawaii um, to sort of talk about what that season had been and to talk about what we wanted to do in the sixth season. And that was when John Wells said, you know, what if we start the next campaign? What if we add another element and then we actually change people's roles and jobs and very exciting to all the writers and, and became a way to refresh the show while keeping it what it was and to make it something new enough that we were no longer just doing our sort of pale you know, version of, of, of Aaron Sorkin. Um, and I think the idea came up pretty quickly, probably John's idea, to you know what was coming over the horizon in American politics. And, and I, I think we all thought you know the first non-white president of the United States is going to be Latino. Because those are the demographics, and I guess we live in California, so we have a bit of a bias toward the even greater demographics in that direction out west. And that's just what we thought might happen. So, you know, why not lead in that direction in a small way and just depict that, and it'll be something not totally unrealistic, but something we can explore that's another kind of wish fulfillment. And so Jimmy Smith's was approached for the role. And I think when, when Jimmy was approached, I think he was told or asked, you know, would you like to take this role and you will be the president on the show? Like, if it continues that long, like, you would be the person who would succeed Martin Sheen. So even when we cast Alan Alda, as far as I know, and I was I was not the person who had those conversations with them, though I worked a lot with both of them, uh, it was, you know, we knew our winner going in. We weren't going to turn the show into a Republican show. I think as an exercise at the beginning of what became the final season, which I think we knew was probably going to be the final season, John said to all of us, what if we throw it up in the air as a writing exercise? And like, it could be either of these guys and we make it a real sort of closely contested campaign. My understanding is that that basic gentleman's agreement that was made with Jimmy never was changed. That he was told he was he would have that role, you know, if it continued that long, and, and that was sort of it. So there may have been some conversations at some point about like, well, sh- should we change that, or does John's death affect that uh, when that happened? But I I just don't think I think if we ever really thought about you know making it a Republican administration, I think it was more of an exercise because the actors certainly had the understanding from the beginning that he was going to win. And I will say that there were people in the writers' room. Um, who thought, for the sake of trying something very different, that it should be Alan Alda, and and who argued very strongly for that in the writers' room. I was a fierce Santos partisan at all times and mm-hmm. argued back very very strongly. Uh, but I don't really think at the end of the day it would have been Alan Alda. That's just my feeling. Great mm-hmm. actor, great guy, mm-hmm. not a at all. 
I mean, both of them, Alan Alda and Jimmy Smits, both of them are so captivating. I mean, it's hard to think, you know, we've been with all of these characters up until season six, and then we meet, you know, two more fully fleshed out characters that you can't help but just feel so much affection for. And you're like, well, I guess I have to love them too. So it's... Well, uh, it's, it's a funny thing because I think one of the real strengths of the West Wing was that they were not... Um, by and large, John Spencer's an exception, actually. Um, they were not seasoned TV actors as much as they were theater actors. Um, Alan Alda and Jimmy Smits, actually, interestingly, they both have always done a lot of theater. Um, but they are, they, at that time and now, they are both TV stars. Um, they are both people who, they've been on hit TV shows, but even more than that, they are TV stars. They work in that medium. You put them on the screen and you want to know what they're going to do and you want to know what they're going to say. And they're your friends in your living room, you know, and, and, and you can, you can see that within 10 minutes of working with them. Mm. They radiate a kind of connection that is really what TV needs at its best. And it's not an accident that they both are iconic, you know? Mm. Yeah, we're actually in the middle of season six right now in our podcast, in our oh, rewatch. So we're, we just, uh. I think Josh just convinced Matt to run, so we're kind of in that in that space right Great. now. Well, you're getting into some of my mm -hmm. uh, favorite times at, to work on the show because we really were creating something a little bit different, and um, and and everything was being thrown up in the air a little bit. And I think there's some really strong material in in that season and in the next season. Yeah, uh, it was really fun to do. When I go back to rewatch, I think I'm kind of an anomaly in that I don't watch sequentially. Like I'll just cherry pick mm -hmm. episodes that I like, but I very often go to season six and seven. So, and, some, and one, two, you know, three. I have, not, I have not visited it myself, but but uh, I, you know, I was really uh, proud to be a part of that team in those years and all, every year. But but um, there were so many fun things, and you had all these people. And by the way, you know, not just Jimmy Smith and Alan Alda. We had we had. Uh, uh, Stephen Root coming in. We had um, Ron Silver coming in. We had maybe this is season seven now. Janine Garofalo coming in, mm -hmm. and these are all you know heavy hit. Well, Ron, Ron I guess started earlier. Another dearly departed, uh, fantastic guy, fantastic actor. But uh, it just, it just every day you were, you were when you were on the set, you were just with these amazing actors you've been watching your whole life and admiring. It was a dream. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine. Uh... Like Aaron said at the ATX Festival, there's you have so many amazing actors and only, you know, 42 minutes of time to, like, feed lines to everyone. You know, like, there's, you know, you just, were there any that you just wish you could give, like, oh, I wish we had gotten to this storyline for Charlie or this for that person, but there just wasn't time. Yeah, I do. I mean, I will say that, you know, the bench was so deep on the West Wing that, um... You know, it's, it's an interesting thing, because when Aaron was running the show, I think there were very few episodes, um, few to no episodes, that focused on a single storyline or a single character. He didn't tend to do that, because he, he, he believed he had an ensemble. He wanted to feed all his children. Uh, he would get sort of, in, a, in, a, in an affectionate way, he would sort of get mad at us as a writer's room if we would hand him a package of proposed stories for the next episode and it would be light on a character and he would say, you know, and I remember him saying many times about, you know, Dulé Hill, like I'm not having Dulé Hill go and hand a memo to the president and have that be his role in this episode. And I think 
Dulé is such a phenomenal actor and has gone on to, you know, be the lead in shows. And, you know, he certainly was capable of it then and was nominated for awards then. But, you know, one of the things I wish we had done much more was take Dulé, say, and give him, a, you know, more to sink his teeth into, more, you know, weighty, dramatic storylines that built over time because he certainly was up for it. And, and it was a show where, you know, Janelle Maloney and Dulé Hill were probably like, you know, nine and ten on the call sheet or whatever, and both phenomenal Emmy-nominated, you know, would be the star of any show you would you would make. Um, so so it's, it's it was easy to write episodes of that show and just figure, well, you got Martin Sheen and Alice Janney and Brad Whitford and Richard Schiff and you know what else you need. Uh, uh, and it was it just it was hard, you know. You wanted them; they all could do everything. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, Dulé never tap danced on the show. That was something we always toyed with. Oh, that's true. Broadway tap dancer. Yeah, he and I are both tap dancers. When we uh, when we met and interviewed him at uh, ATX, we did a little hoofing together, so it was fun. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, So, uh, moving right along, actually, one specific question I was wondering is: Do you remember like who thought of CJ becoming chief of staff, and was that just a strategic move to free up Josh to go on the campaign trail? Oh, well, you mean to free up Leo to go on the campaign trail? Well, I guess the question was like, why didn't Josh become the new Leo after Leo had his heart attack? So, yeah, when it went to CJ instead of Josh. Well, I, I, I think now it's now I can't quite remember the order of events, but I, I think when we decided that we were going to run this next campaign, mm-hmm. Josh was always more political than right. CJ, say. And even then, Toby, although Toby had a history as, a, as an operative, he was a little bit more of a kind of a good government guy. Right. I just think that's how we saw him. Whereas if anybody was the operative, it was Josh. And and, you know, there's no better actor. So when we planned this whole kind of Jimmy Smith thing, I think we always saw it as Josh. In fact, it's funny the way John Wells, I remember, described it to me when I started to write some early kind of Santos episodes is we want to see these two guys as nobodies in Iowa and New Hampshire, like standing outside donut shops you know, having trouble getting somebody to, like, shake his hand and take them all the way to the Oval Office. Mm. That was the idea. So we were seeing the end game at that point. Um, and so then I just think it was, it was who could we give a different, more interesting role to, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I don't know how different, would have been less different for Toby I think to be White House Chief of Staff because he already had a little more of a direct relationship with the president and some more authority in mm-hmm. some ways. It just was something different to give a great actor. Um, uh, I don't remember who came up with the idea. Um, it wasn't my idea, but but I think I think I wrote the episode that like ended two seconds before she's told. Yeah, like um, are you ready to jump off a cliff or something like right, that? Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But one of the great things about that later era of the show was just thought, well, we've done, you know, done however many episodes, a hundred and something episodes of all these characters in these exact roles. You know, we told all those stories and aren't going to tell them as well as Aaron Sorkin anyway. So why don't we just mix it up and then you can't tell the same stories. And it was a great, it was just great for, for the staff, for the writing staff. Mm-hmm. 
And we also love the end of uh, seasons. Well, we love season six and seven also because of the Josh and Donna. I mean, we can't <laughs> we can't omit yeah. that from the storyline. Yes. The one yeah. it's surprising that that really I mean, we have, you know, shorter arcs of romantic entanglements with characters. But really, that is the only kind of through line aside from, you know, Abby and, and Jed, which wasn't really a, a, in question, you know, it was an established thing. Sure. So yes, absolutely. it's, I don't know. Do you have any Josh and Donna? I mean, you were there to kind of choreograph it well, coming to fruition. It, it, it's, they're so great together. And the interesting thing about Josh and Donna, and there's no question, there are some episodes very early in the series, you know, where there's a great line uh, in some early episode line of Aaron's about, um, I guess she had a boyfriend. She ended up in the hospital and she had a boyfriend who stopped for a beer or something on the way. And, and he had this line about how he wouldn't have stopped for red lights. So definitely those are emotional signposts that were put there deliberately. But those actors, you could just write, you know, assistant and boss banter and they would layer it with some emotional, romantic, flirty subtext. Mm -hmm. That would be so good was that sometimes those stories were written, a lot of time they weren't written, and they just felt like they were written. Mm. You know, that if you really looked at those lines, had you given them to some extra, you know, as the you know assistant to another character, you wouldn't have even thought about them. Mm. Uh, and that's what, that's what you want as a writer, is, you know, you write A, B, and C, and then you want the actors to also give you D and E, mm. you know, that you don't even know are there sometimes. Um, so we all loved writing them together. Uh, I think those were always just such instantly classic West Wing type scenes, you know, that, 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 um, it was just irresistible to, to, to put them together and, and, uh, they had that great chemistry, you know, uh, as actors. And I certainly was a fan of it. Um, was there I ever a question that it was going to happen or not? Or was it kind of like, okay, we all agree that this needs to happen. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a sort of screenwriting 101, or, or should be screenwriting 101, that in a romantic comedy, when the guy and the girl get together, unless they immediately break up, uh, the, the movie's over. Because, you know, what makes a story is really the obstacles between your, what you intend to do and, and actually getting it done. So, you know, if you have, if you're trying to do a love story, quality of your love story to some degree is only a uh, factor of the quality of your obstacles. Mm -hmm. I've always thought the reason Tootsie is the greatest romantic comedy is because there's a pretty big obstacle to Jessica Lange and Dustin Hoffman getting together, which is that he's a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it takes a while to remove that obstacle. And so for Josh and Donna, part of the obstacle was she worked for him. And that was actually, you know, not appropriate. Um, and, you know, we had a lot of fun putting her on, you know, the that rival campaign and giving her new roles and responsibilities. And she certainly did a great job with those things, the actor, Janelle. Um, but I think we all had a feeling that the moment they get together, it had better be within weeks of the series ending mm. because it's just the tension is what's fun yeah. and exciting. And, you know, seeing two people on a couch, you know, watching Netflix is a little less fun and exciting but we all love it in our personal lives it, it's so uh, it's so true yeah a lot of examples of, of shows that have gotten those 
couples together too soon and and then find they just don't have as many places to go mm-hmm. after that happened the famous example is moonlighting um but i think it happened to some degree on house the show i worked on after the west wing where lisa edelstein west wing alum no uh, lisa edelstein and hugh laurie's character got together but not the last season and probably something we should have waited to do in the last season you know uh it's just there's so much it's just fun to, you know, the, the, the sort of intimations of, of the future are often more fun than seeing the future. Mm. All right. I've got about two more questions before we wrap. So I know that, and this is all just things I've read on the internet, so it must be true, that... Fake. Don't give me that <laughs> fake news. <laughs> oh, I'll call up my friends at CNN. That Aaron wanted the show to be kind of devoid of pop culture references so it wouldn't be tied down to a certain time frame. Do you think that's what makes the show timeless or is it a combination of its idealism and that that's kind of appealing in a timeless way or, uh, I think, I I mean, I think what makes the show timeless, you know, it's, 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 it's both to the extent that it is timeless, which is of course for other people to judge and not me, but to the extent that it is timeless, it's, it's the main reason is it's just good. You know what I mean? Is the quality of it, and that people still want to watch it, and that people still like those performances, and that people still think those stories are interesting. That's the real reason. But um, I think the lack of references that date it, and also, quite frankly, another big Aaron rule was, um, and he broke both these rules very occasionally. I I, I, I hasten to add, and I can talk about that. Uh, but in addition to no contemporary pop culture references he also didn't want to refer to presidents more recent than eisenhower because he felt and he used to talk about it he felt that you know if if you talked about president bush or you know daddy bush or or uh president clinton you know he didn't want people to think well is bartlett instead of clinton or is he between clinton and bush and suddenly this parallel universe kind of folds in on itself because Mm doesn't fit into the real world. So he just figured, let's leave the real world out of it. I remember coming to the show and saying to somebody, you know, I know a lot of people in politics, senators and people like that who would probably be thrilled to make cameos on the show. And I remember being told, not by Aaron, but by somebody, we would never do that because we didn't want to collide. We didn't want our fake universe to collide with the real one. And then suddenly it just all seemed totally phony. But I do uh, remember once somebody making a point to Aaron about something and pitched a line or a moment that made a reference to Oprah. And he liked the point so much that he said, you know what, I normally wouldn't do this, but I'm going to use this on the show. <laughs> um, and of course, the other, the other thing is that you know, our characters are constantly going to the Kennedy Center, and he's a more recent president than Eisenhower, but the joke among the writers was that it was named after George Kennedy. Oh, of course. Yes. That's what we got around that. Less but, uh, uh, but I think it's true. It... it you don't watch the show now and find that it's a kind of a, a sea of references to music and, you know, hip phrases from the early 2000s. You know, very often TV shows, comedies more than dramas, but both will also use just like what's the hip phrase the kids are using now or whatever. And The West Wing was, was I think, tried not to do that. One of the writers on the show used to always say, it's the best TV show of 1953. Because there was nothing contemporary about it, but I think he meant it in a good way. Mm. Uh, I think that you know Aaron's references were probably more 
Preston Sturgis and Ben Hecht than whatever was going on in TV and movies in the late 90s, early 2000s anyway. Mm. Um, so this is the kind of the burning question for most people. I'm going to ask two, two parts of it. One, okay. thoughts on a reboot, any sort of iteration of it, whether it's a miniseries, a movie, whatever. First of all, do you think our climate in society, do you think that we're too cynical for that now than we were back then? You think we need it now more than ever? So in terms of the audience, do you think that that would land now? And B, more importantly, would Aaron even write it? Because I guess we can all be like, yes, it would be great, or this, it could be great, and it would follow this, but like Aaron would never do it. And since you know him, like what do you, what, what's your reading on that? You no, know, I, I don't know what his answer would be. Uh, and of course, he'd be the only person at the moment who could answer that question. I don't think, certainly wouldn't make sense with anybody else writing it, even though there were seasons on the show he was not a part of. It's his show, it's his DNA. We kept it going because it was still on the air and people still wanted to watch it. But it would be, if there was some, if Netflix decided we want to do eight hours of this, it should be written by Aaron. Uh, I'm sure a bunch of us would be willing to go back and help and kick around ideas. But I guess on one hand, yes, I think people, I think there, we were in a cynical time then. I mean, maybe, you know, every, every era seems like the most cynical era. Uh, so I think the idealism wouldn't be out of place. I think, if anything, there's been more TV shows about the sort of venal, cynical, craven side of politics, which is all there was before The West Wing, really. It's, it's just the only show, pretty much, that's ever existed outside that box, as far as I know. I have not seen uh, Madam Secretary. That may be more like that. But... You know, I think it's that's always a good thing. I think the challenge is that right now, on the eve, the literal eve of the Trump inauguration, um, politics suddenly have become very strange in this country. I mean, we have a, a, a guy who is like a, the kind of crazy narcissistic oligarch who takes over some banana republic and just leaves it dry. And so until that settles down into some more normal rhythm, I don't know that you could do more of the West Wing and just ignore that. I think if in four months it seems like, oh yeah, he's some business guy, but really it's just all the Republican regulars running the government, and it kind of it's not that different than it used to be. Then I think you, then I think the West Wing would find its place. I mean, to some degree, it's what we went through on September 11th, where briefly Aaron felt, and a lot of us felt, the world has changed. You know, petty political grievances are not really what politics is about right now, um, and actually, I think in the pre-Trump era, it's every grievance is massive, you know, so how would you deal with that on the show? But, you know, could it be done? Yeah, I think it could be done. Would some of those actors want to do it? You know, they're not all available. You know, Alice and Janney's under contract on CBS, and other people have their deals and commitments, but you never know. For a handful of episodes on some streaming service, I think it could be really fun. Mm. Yeah, there are many people who are clinging to that hope to get through the next four years. We've had so many it's people. More and more. I mean, in the business, it's happening more and more. Yeah, I mean, and, and like I mentioned, we're Sally and I are both huge Gilmore Girls fans. So especially just well, yeah. there you go. Sure. And now they just announced. I don't know if you saw, but Will and Grace. Yeah. Is going to come for ten episodes on NBC. Mm -hmm. I think that in a, in a time of shrinking audiences, I think. Studios and, and, and networks and executives are realizing there's all these 
old franchises that have huge audiences dying mm-hmm. to see them. And if we stick Will and Grace on the air, it's it's definitely going to do better than some new thing new. that no one's heard of. Mm-hmm. So if people are willing to do it, why not try it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess the question is just, you know, Aaron probably has so many stories that he wants to tell that have nothing to do with the West Wing. So it's like, when will it ever be at the top of his queue? Who knows? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not at the top of his list. But but I think at the same time, he created this wonderful universe and these wonderful characters. And I could see a universe in which someone goes to him and says, do four episodes mm-hmm. or something like that. And we've already talked to Alison Janney and Brad Woodford and whoever, and it would be them now. I mean, the other thing you have to keep in mind is it's been a while. They look older. Mm-hmm. They know the people's hair. Has Except grayed. for Jimmy Smith's, really. Uh, they're not. And I think that the actors, one of the reasons they were so good is they were not 25 when the show started. They were seasoned people who've done movies and theater and and we're probably pushing the limits age-wise of playing the young Turks in the White House then. So that would be the thing people would have to get ready for is that they, they're not going to look like the kids staffers anymore. They, they're going to look like senators now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe maybe that's the show you do. You know, maybe you maybe you pick up on where they are in very different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because they're not all going to be working in the White House together. That just doesn't happen. Right. You know. Uh, little thing called term limits. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I, I know uh, Rob Lowe's been kind of angling, like, oh, it could happen. I could see it happening. I think, you know, he wants to see that initial, you know, when Bartley kind of taps him to like, oh, you're going to you're gonna be president someday, Sam. So I think that he kind of wants to see that kind of star vehicle, which I don't fault him for that. You know, who knows? It could happen. Spinoffs are uh, commonly done. We'll just have to wait and see what's next. Absolutely, yes. Very well phrased. <laughs> oh, Eli, there, there is so much. I appreciate you spending time and giving us all of your insights. We could probably go on forever, but this will definitely feed our, our happy West Wing fans. So thank you for all of your oh, it's a great pleasure. time it's a great and pleasure. your effort and the stories that you've given us. We love them. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm really so pleased and proud that I was, a uh, you know, was able to play a little part in this show that I loved so much. And, you know, it was, uh, the five seasons I was on the show were, it was the best job I ever had. Um, I'm still close to a lot of the people from the show, writers, actors, people, on, directors, people on the crew. Um, it is, a, it, there's a real family vibe when we see each other. And, uh, you just hope that all the things you do in life are like that. You know, it was a really wonderful experience and i'm so i'm so grateful that you guys are keeping it going with this podcast and keeping people thinking about it and talking about it you know keeping it in in their hearts you know it's a a wonderful thing yeah we're happy to keep it on people's minds all the the internet people have gone crazy and stayed crazy for it so i'm I'm grateful to them all (laughs) thank you so much Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, as you may or may not have noticed, you were not interrupted by our sponsors because we are listener-supported. We're like NPR, except much more silly. So if you want to become one of our listener supporters, you can join us on our brand new patron page. So if you just go to patron, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, slash pod, uh, you can become a supporter. We have eight months left of our podcast at the time of recording. So if you want to become one of our sponsors, we would love it. And if not, no worries. We will be back next week either way. Thanks so much.